The Holy Gospel for this Trinity Sunday comes from John chapter 16. Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but will speak whatever he hears, and will declare to you the things that are to come. The Spirit will glorify me, because he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. For this reason I said that the Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Dear friends in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Creator and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. So as I've said a few times today, today is Holy Trinity Sunday. It's a time and space in the life of the church when we give ourselves the opportunity to consider what it means that every week we get together and we confess that we have one God, and yet God is also three. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creator, redeemer, sanctifier, beloved, lover, and love, one God, mother of us all. As we do that, I think one of the best ways to enter into that mystery isn't theology, but poetry. So I'm going to read for you a poem by Billy Collins, who was the poet laureate of the United States about 20 years ago. And it's called Introduction to Poetry. And to hear this poem, I'd like you to imagine that you are the teacher of Poetry 101. And it is the first day of class. I asked them to take a poem and hold it up to the light like a color slide or press an ear against its hive. I say, drop a mouse into a poem and watch him probe his way out or walk inside the poem's room and feel the walls for a light switch. I want them to water ski across the surface of a poem waving at the author's name on the shore. But all they want to do is tie the poem to a chair with a rope and torture a confession out of it. They begin beating it with a hose to find out what it really means. Theologians have had a lot to say about the idea of Trinity over the years. A great many sermons have been preached in which this whole doctrine and idea has been carefully taken apart and attempted to be put back together. But all too often, I think we take this complex, living, mysterious teaching about God and we turn ourselves into those students in Poetry 101. We tie this doctrine to a chair with a rope and try to torture a confession out of it, beating it until it tells us what it really means. And that never works. So instead of explanation today, perhaps we should think more about wonder. Awe and wonder at a God who could never be fully explained or grasped or managed. A God who slips out of even our best theological attempts and our most revered traditions. Today isn't about explaining everything we know about God, but experiencing something of the wonder of God. And for that, with no offense to theologians, I think we might engage a different part of our imagination instead. Today is a good day to listen to the poets and the scientists 
and the artists who teach us so well to look carefully and wait and wonder. A few weeks ago, a friend of mine mentioned a book she had been reading, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, by an Italian physicist, Carlo Rovelli. She said something that grabbed my attention that she had read in this book. Although it was with a great deal of fear and trembling that I picked up the book, as the realm of physics is as a foreign land to me, a place I have not been. When I got the book from the library, it's very mercifully small, I opened it carefully. What will happen to me when I go into this book? I don't know what I'm doing, and I can't control what happens next. Thankfully, I had the opportunity this week to talk with one of the physicists in our congregation, with Becky Fowler, who sat down with me to make sure that what I was going to say to you was reasonably accurate, although any mistakes that remain are definitely mine. Here's what I learned. Quantum physics, as you may know, is the study of the smallest things, protons and neutrons and electrons, and how they behave. On the one hand, so much of it is so abstract, it's hardly imaginable, and yet it is what we are made of, how we are built. And the insights of quantum physics impact everything we do and know and see. And while I am still barely dipping my toe into the shallow end of the physics pool, what I read in this book felt both strange and yet familiar. Because I read that these smallest things often behave in unexpected ways. And they do that because everything is constantly in relationship. Light can be both wave and a particle, two things at the same time, and your observing that phenomenon actually changes what's happening. We can hardly get our minds around the science of quantum physics, and yet we can describe it, how it works, and the impact it makes, well enough that we have created things like nuclear power plants and MRI machines and computer chips. Those exist because of what we do know. And yet, the more we know, the more we realize we don't know. So, things behave in unexpected ways. You can't control them or manage them. But everything that is exists in relationship. Things that look solid and unmoving are actually made of interacting bits, relating and bouncing all the time. We don't really have language to describe all of this, and yet we see its effects. We see it at work all the time. And there's so much we don't know. It was beginning to sound a lot like something we say together every week. I believe in God the Creator, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only begotten one of God, that divine Creator made flesh and blood. God more than one thing at a time, a relationship constantly interacting and moving. I believe in the Holy Spirit living among us and beyond us in this life and the next. We might actually all be saying some of the same things, that life, that God is relationship, a divine dance between unity and diversity, always moving and changing, as close as our breath built into us, and yet 
as unknowable as the farthest reaches of an ever-expanding universe. We spend a lot of time, maybe this is a confession, trying to control this God, put language around God, make God knowable and understandable, explaining this God to one another, arguing with each other about who has the best words. But in fact, if we listen to this world and our own selves and the people whose brilliant minds study it in minute detail, we hear a different invitation. That maybe the holiest thing you and I do, the thing closest to the very being of God, isn't arguing about words, but just being in relationship. Any relationship. Inside the church, outside the church, when relationships are beautiful and when they are hard, as we relate to one another, we are doing a divine thing. And we're built for that. It's in who we are. It's built into our bones and the air we breathe and the earth we share. And it turned out that both quantum physics and theology can teach us that. So poetry kind of brought us into the room today and physics gave us another view and, <coughs> excuse me, and then there are artists. The kids in the congregation, for one. The book of Genesis tells us that on a hot day a long time ago, Abraham decided to take a rest at the entrance of his tent. He was, after all, an old man by then, 99 years old, and still working hard every day. He sat outside the tent and closed his eyes and listened to the breeze and the trees and thought, pretty soon I will get up and work again, but not yet. As he sat with his eyes closed, he heard footsteps, more than one set. He opened his eyes. The actual story in Genesis begins with these words, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat in the heat of the day. But what Abraham saw when he opened his eyes was not one being, the Lord, but three. Three men who seemed to have appeared out of nowhere. Abraham rushed into his tent and told his wife Sarah to get some food and water ready. And while the three men ate together at table, they made a surprising announcement to Abraham that he and his wife Sarah were about to have a baby. Now that story is the one that you see pictured in this icon today. This is kind of a close-up of it. There are some parts you don't see. But these three figures are called the Hospitality of Abraham. It was painted by a Russian artist, Andrei Rublev, sometime in the 1400s. But in addition to being called the Hospitality of Abraham, it's also called the Trinity. As you may know, icons, while they are beautiful art, are also designed to be more than art. They're meant to give us a glimpse of something beyond themselves, as if they're a window that you look through into something bigger. Now, words can never truly describe art. That's why there's art. We don't have the words. 
But it's still worth asking ourselves, and I'm going to ask you and invite you to actually answer out loud this question, so heads up. What words pop to your mind to describe the God that you see pictured in this icon? If you want me to hear it, you have to say it fairly loud. I'm far away. Trinity. Pensive. Oh, that's a new one. Peaceful relationship. Engaged. Humble. This is fun because I get different answers all three times today. Friendship. Yeah. They look sad. They do. They look sort of somber, don't they? Yeah. Maybe that's the pensive part, right? Sharing. So think about that. Continue to think about that, right? There's no, it's the beauty of art. There's no wrong answers to this question. Some of the ones that came to my own mind included um, hospitality, welcome, refreshment, equality. Some scholars say, without getting too specific and limiting our imaginations, some say that the figure on the left, on your left here, is meant to represent God the creator, that the gold robe is a symbol of the source of life. And Jesus is supposed to be the figure in the middle, that the blue robe represents the sky and the sea, heaven and earth meeting each other. And that this figure on your right is meant to represent the Holy Spirit, this is robe reads kind of blue, but in the original it's pretty green. And that represents life and newness and growth. People have studied this icon for 500 years, 600 years. A contemporary theologian, Richard Rohr, is among many who point out that the Spirit's hand seems to be pointing toward a fourth open spot at the table. And he also notes one other thing, which is that on the front of the table, actually just below where you can see, there appears to be a little hole. And he says most people pass right over it, but some art historians believe that the remaining glue on the original icon indicates there was perhaps once a mirror glued to the front of the table. In other words, the Spirit's hand is pointing toward an open place at the table for you. At the very least, I always hope that a sermon will give you something relatively specific and concrete that you can take into the week ahead of you. And that doesn't work at all today, because today is not really about being specific and concrete. It's about wonder and mystery and questions and doubts. It's about art and physics and poetry, about things so big we can hardly imagine them, and yet so close to us, we feel them all the time. But maybe the most beautiful thing we can learn today from the physicists and the poets and the artists and even the theologians is that you and all of creation are invited to sit have a place at this table and reflect the very image of God that we see 
however we struggle to explain God or know God, whatever diversity and differences we have and how we experience God, God is always making room for us. I'll give a theologian the final word. Frederick Buechner, who is a writer and pastor, once said, Theology is the study of God and God's ways. For all we know, dung beetles may study humans in our ways and call it humanology. If so, we would probably be more touched and amused than irritated. One hopes that God feels likewise. Amen.